Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It's midweek already. It's a Wednesday on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and a plane dealer. We always have stuff to talk about on Wednesdays, I think. So let's get to it. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Courtney Astolfi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston. And Lisa, you're up first. Why does a group of judges want to hide a proposed statewide sentencing database from the public? that pays their salaries. The whole purpose of this database was to give accountability and now they want to keep it secret. Yeah, this group is the Ohio Common Pleas Judges Association, and its president, Robert Hickson, who is a Common Pleas judge in Morrow County, uh, wrote a letter to the Ohio Supreme Court Sentencing Commission with concerns about this proposed sentencing database being publicly available. So this database would have, you know, have judges put all of their sentences into a single unified database that they can use to see how similar cases and similar defendants have been sentenced so they can you know, kind of hew that line. But they're calling for the Supreme Court to eliminate a propo- proposed changes to the rules of superintendents, and that would allow the court to uh, uh, vet, vet through the Sentencing Commission for new proposals to replace this database or create legislation that would make this data exempt from public records laws. Hickson says... He's worried that broad access to this database by attorneys, media, and others would lead to cherry-picking data and interfere with judges' discretion in sentencing and also allow people to critique sentencing decisions. He claims that this was the unanimous position of the board of the Judges Association, but... The the first vice president, Brendan Sheehan, who's a Cuyahoga County administrative judge for Common Pleas, says he has no comment. We asked him. He said no comment. He said he was not at this meeting when this letter was drafted. And then Cleveland Judge John J. Russo wrote his own letter, and he said that, you know, hiding this database from the public is akin to creating a secret judges club. Look, this is just plain stupid. These guys are all elected, and the, the whole and we did a story last year. Corey Schaefer found sentencing disparity between two judges that was astounding, and it was all about race. This was something that sparked the demand for accountability, that the judges are all secretly doing their sentencing. There's no parity. You get treated differently in one courtroom than another. The whole purpose of putting this database together is to make sure that Ohio sentencing makes sense. The idea that publicly elected people 
making public decisions would try and shield this is just preposterous. And any judge that stands behind that request ought to be drummed out. We ought to publicize their names and say, these people do not want to be accountable to the voters. Get rid of them. It just defies imagination that they would actually go on the record saying we want to keep secret any comparison of what we do. Yeah. And Ohio Supreme Court Justice Michael Donnelly said that this is what the law mandates anyway. I did not know this, but state law requires judges to impose similar sentences for similar defendants and cases. So he's saying, you know, the public has a right to know this database will help judges determine if they're imposing similar sentences. So uh, it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. and It's just wrong. Go ahead, Laura. I was just going to say, they were like, well, we don't want journalists to cherry pick the information. It's like, okay, but like, that's what, that's what people deserve to know. It's like, they, they think we're going to use it for nefarious purposes, but it's really just to show everyone what you're doing. You're elected, you're responsible to voters and the people you're sentencing. Here's the information. It's, it's worse. They're basically saying people are too stupid to digest this information, so we shouldn't let them have it. This is such a condescending, cynical approach that if we put the information out there, people won't understand it and they'll use it against us. It's, it's just unbelievable that they came out and said this. I think there's going to be an enormous backlash. And whoever has their name on a letter like that really ought to not be working for the public. They ought not to be paid with tax dollars. More to come. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Are Cuyahoga County Council members really going to sink us all into millions of more debt to spend millions on the failed medical mart? Courtney, they've talked about doing this, but it seems like they're moving full speed ahead on something that virtually no one in the county agrees with, except for maybe Dave Gilbert and a couple of people involved in tourism. Yeah, so the county council yesterday at its meeting, it looks like they were introducing this measure to to issue $31 million in debt that would be repaid over a 20-year lifespan, and it would be the major source of funding for what's expected to be a $46 million renovation of the Global Center to integrate it and make it part of the convention center. You know, this money would double the size of a ballroom, add more meeting space, add escalators, and just make it kind of more friendly for conventions. Like you said, we've heard from the public some um, hesitancy to use the money this way, but you know, we could see council approve this in the coming weeks. You can debate whether you shouldn't sell it because it is so interconnected with the convention center. You can debate what its use is. I think what people are hot about is spending more money on it. That, that maybe the answer is make a proof of concept, use what you have there, see how it adjusts the convention business, and then let's talk about ways to update it. They're just going full Taj Mahal. They're going to spend $46 million, including $31 million in new debt because we don't have the money to, to build up a building that nobody uses, nobody wants. We've done story after story about this. I don't know, Courtney, there's something going on with this county council. It's almost like... They're intentionally putting their heads in the stand to ignore the desires of the public or they're stubbornly refusing. The slush funds they created are hugely unpopular, $66 million that they're flushing down the toilet. And this is just something the public doesn't want to see. Use the building. Make it part of the convention center. But why borrow to do it when you need a new jail, you need a new justice center? Money is so tight. This is just 
luxury spending. Well, yeah, and, and when we're talking about money here, I'd say it's important to note that that $5 million for this project is expected to come from ARPA money. So this one-time very special resource that we all have right now is going to be sunk into this facility. Also, it appears that there's like a $3 million funding gap here or or around there. And we don't know where that money is going to come from. So I wonder if additional money will come from ARPA. Either way, you know, I, you know, I think the intention is to make sure that this building isn't sitting empty. As you said, there's perhaps some other options there instead of going full bore and leaving it as it is. But as the plans stand today, you know, the board that oversees operations of the convention center want to get going with construction next year. They want it ready by 2024. So there's this sense of urgency coming from the folks who run this. And, um, you know, as you said, our, our previous analysis, we found, you know, the county spend millions over the last decade here, potentially up to $144 million on this facility. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we, we will. Every county council member that votes for this, when it's time for their reelection, we're going to remind people how, how they voted to spend the money. You said it's a $4 million funding gap. I would argue it's $31 million funding gap. They don't have the money, so they have to borrow it. That's a funding gap. And, and it's just more debt for the county taxpayers as we might be heading into a recession. Taxpayers write to me all the time. They're sick of how much the county is squandering their money. This I just don't get why they're in full bore moving ahead instead of taking the time to think it through. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are the practical ramifications of the Ohio Supreme Court's declaring Tuesday that Ohio's congressional maps are unconstitutional for the 2024 election? We know we're using unconstitutional maps for this year's election, Laura, but this is saying in 2024, they're still unconstitutional. Does it mean anything? I don't think so. I mean, this is not a surprise, right? That this congressional map that the Ohio Redistricting Commission approved, we all used to vote in the primary for our House of Representative members. This has been deemed unconstitutional. It's the same 4-3 majority as six earlier redistricting decisions. So if you're losing track, we're on number seven. This is when Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor sides with the Democrats. I don't think this is going to make the Republican-controlled commission ever do the right thing. The court is giving the state legislature 30 days to draw a new map, which would be used for the 2024 election. If they fail to act, then the Republican-dominated redistricting commission gets 30 days to do it. But my guess is they're going to do nothing. That's what they did the last time the Supreme Court said the state legislative map was Jerry and there were really no repercussions. They weren't held in contempt. And, you know, we're all voting on using those maps on August 2nd. The, the, when the Supreme Court race is decided in the fall, that will determine everything. If Sharon Kennedy wins, then we'll be stuck with these unconstitutional maps. If she loses, you get the feeling that with two years to go, they'll be able to compel changes. Right. I mean, yes, you'd think so. But I think a lot depends on who we elect and who's going to be on the redistricting commission. And yeah, who's on the Supreme Court? I don't I mean, this it seems like the Supreme Court has been toothless when it comes to this. And I don't think they can make them do anything. Yeah, well, that's been proven. OK, you're listening to Today in Ohio. How is Cleveland's approach to spending American Rescue Plan money dollars? So much more responsible than the approach of Cuyahoga County Council. Lisa, the city seems like it's just taking its time and being thoughtful. 
Yeah, it's it's a very deliberative process. And to illustrate that, they got $512 million in ARPA dollars. They still have $300 million left to spend, to allocate. So uh, they're obviously taking their time. So uh, Mayor Justin Bibb and uh, Council President Blaine Griffin say they hope to move forward with specific proposals in early fall. But what they're doing is, is they have a screening uh, process. So they're going to screen applications and determine exactly how many people People are served by each proposal, and then they're graded. So the top grade would go to a a proposal that would serve at least 10,000 residents, 500 businesses, and create at least 5,000 jobs. They would get the highest marks, and then they would grade, you know, uh, accordingly uh, below that. They also look at project longevity, the environmental impact, and how much other funding it can draw. So maybe the ARPA dollars would serve as seed money to draw public and private money. And all uh, proposals must get full approval from city council. I, you know, we've been talking about the dysfunction at Cleveland City Hall for a lot of years. But since the new administration came in, since the new council president, Blaine Griffin, has come in, it just seems to me that they're being thoughtful and purposeful uh, and, and explaining what their thinking is in a way we hadn't seen in a while, which is very helpful, I think, to taxpayers who are distrustful of government. Yeah, and I and I forgot to mention that the screening process goes through Bibb's Center for Economic Recovery. So it's not council that's screening the applications. It's and these are all uh members of his cabinet. Uh, They do have until the end of 2024 to allocate their money and all of it must be spent by the end of 2026. We will pay very close attention through our Stimulus Watch reporter, Lucas Deprile, to make sure that the dollars are actually spent on what they say and that the contractors who are getting them are getting them through competition and not by being favored people. But so far, Cleveland seems like it's taken a good approach to this money. It's Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Let's go to the other side. What are the latest slush fund projects the Cuyahoga County Council members have proposed, Courtney? Yes. So yesterday we saw introduced about $11.5 million worth of spending from this controversial pot of ARPA money. And, you know, some big ticket items in there include $2.5 million for a new treatment facility um, involving the Cleveland Hitchcock Center for Women. And it's worth noting that 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 project also got two million from the city's ARPA allocation, so a total of four and a half million there. And then some other big ticket items from the county is one point five mil for a Lakewood recycling and animal shelter project, one point two million for a police shooting range in Rocky River, 
1.2 million for a Bay Village lakefront project. Then there's, you know, a handful of miscellaneous stuff up there. The others no more than 1 million apiece. The, the, let's remind people, this is part of the $66 million that the council secretly set aside for itself with no public discussion to give $6 million to each council member to direct where it goes. Ultimately, the whole council has to vote on each of these. But as we pointed out, no one's going to vote against the proposal of a fellow council member for fear of having their own things rejected. There'll be a long line of these. And again, Stimulus Watch reporter Lucas Deprile will follow every cent as our readers have told us they want us to do. They're not happy about the slush fund idea. Yeah, and and I did want to just chip in. You know, last week Lucas wrote about some other slush fund uh, proposals moving through one of the council committees, and it sounded like council members did not scrutinize how their colleagues arrived at these recommendations. It didn't sound like there were any questions about why did you think this was the best use of the money of the art one-time funds? And as these move through committee, I'm curious if that question's ever going to get raised at council. Yeah, they're, they're not doing what they said. Everything about this is such a disaster, but they're moving ahead with it because they like to be handing out the cash. It's today in Ohio. Let's stick with the stimulus subject for one more question. How is Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb and the city council making sure that after the stimulus dollars are gone, the city will be able to weather a serious economic downturn? Yes, this was a pretty big move we're seeing in Cleveland. So last week, city council approved this plan that would add $20 million to the city's rainy day fund that would bring its total up to 65 million. And they also created a new fund that essentially sits there as like a payroll reserve for separation payments when people like cash out their unused retirement or unused vacation when they retire. And but but Justin Bibb does not intend to use that money for that purpose. Rather, the creation of this account was intended to serve as essentially a, a, a second rainy day fund. So we'd have a 65 mil plus 90, 90 million sitting aside in case a recession does hit. Now, everyone's concerned about what the economic indicators are telling us. There needs to be a backup plan if, if, if we want to avoid layoffs and, and cuts to city services, as we've seen during past recessions. And that's kind of the goal here. Now, if we back out a little bit and see the way that they were able to put this money in this account is that they used about $110 million of ARPA funding to pay for public safety salaries, which are usually funded from the general fund. Because ARPA covered those costs, the city then just had $110 million sitting there that was freed up, essentially, to be moved to the reserves. And I think it's important to put into context, it's not technically ARPA money, but it is ARPA money, just, just in a different form. And what this looks like is about 20% of the city's total federal aid dating back to 2020, which includes some CARES Act money as well, about 20% of that is going to go to the savings accounts here, and about 80% of it is expected to be spent on program services projects. So that's kind of the split we're seeing about how the city's prioritizing these federal dollars. And look, this isn't just about the eventual recession or downturn. The city has a gigantic unknown ahead because of work from home. The city has long calculated its income tax collections based on the stability of the downtown workforce. And if the economy goes up and down, they can make predictions. 
But city has no idea really how many people will return to downtown because so many employees right now will quit before they go back to the office. So having a big reserve in place while this shakes out, and it might take years to shake out, smart. It's smart to have it because otherwise, like you said, you'd be laying off police and cutting back on parks and recreation and pools. So they have a lot of money. It's smart to put it away because the future is uncertain. It's today in Ohio. How are the cities of Bedford and Richmond Heights reacting to the decision by university hospitals to cut inpatient services and seriously cut back how the hospitals serve their regions? Laura, these things are all but closing. Right. Basically, they're going to be outposts and they will have some wellness ideas, you know, as services that will be offered, but they won't have emergency rooms. They won't have physicians there staffed daily. And the idea is that they want to funnel patients away from these smaller regional hospitals into the bigger ones. Like UH is spending a whole bunch of money to update and expand Ahuja and Beechwood. So this, the mayors of these cities are concerned. They're representing the concerns of their residents who say, you know, you're going to have to drive six miles further to get to an ER and we're not going to have the access that we have. Also, they're going to lose a lot of tax dollars of all the people that were working there. About a million dollars is the estimate in Richmond Heights. Bedford's still calculating. And then all the, sorry, ancillary um, services, all the gas stations, the restaurants, places, people who would stop at grocery stores on their way, those people will not be stopping by anymore. So those businesses are going to suffer. It, it, this is a devastating blow, and it's almost artificial what they've done. They, I, I won't be surprised if two years from now they just close them, right? Because this is all but closing them. I mean, you're you're taking community needs and. And cutting them back. I, a reader, an astute reader, um, sent a note to me on in the subtext, I think. It might have been an email that said, you know, you just had a story that said zip codes and redlining mm-hmm. predict health outcomes. You know, we talked about this a couple of days ago, that redlining from 50 years ago still has ramifications on health today. And and when you start to remove these kind of health services, that just exacerbates that. And so the reader's saying, don't don't these hospitals, they're nonprofit, they mm-hmm. rake in the money. Don't they have a responsibility to serve the community? What are they doing with all that money they make with they retrench from their, their services? I was surprised that the mayors weren't more condemning. It's almost like, well, if I get too condemning, I'll lose what little I have left. But I, I if I were the mayor, I think I would have come out and said, you are dropping your responsibility to the community. They are they they felt like this was coming and then they'd known it was coming. They were still surprised because both of them said they'd had regular meetings with UH and it was just business as usual, but they felt like they've seen the writing on the wall, right? Remember when the Cleveland Clinic uh, closed Huron Hospital and then Lakewood Hospital and people were outraged. It didn't make any difference. They still closed it. I, I do want to see what they do with these wellness services, right? They want to have the behavioral health unit is going to stay at UH Richmond. They want wellness programs and services focusing on maternal and child health, food security, food security, workforce development. All of that is really important and could serve the neighborhoods because you're right. These are this isn't Beechwood. They're, they're spending $236 million in Beechwood that doesn't have the same kind of needs as these communities. So I, I do understand there is a nursing shortage nationwide. They have to consolidate. They have to go put their money where the patients are going. But you're right. 
they are nonprofits. They have a responsibility to the community. The optics of greatly expanding the Ahuja Beachwood Hospital Mm -hmm. while cutting these two community hospitals to the bone, it's terrible. I mean, it's just a terrible thing. I don't think they've really done the job of explaining it well. I think they owe the communities a bigger explanation about why. The the economic impact, the hospital is not responsible to provide income taxes to the communities. That's not what they're there for. They're there to provide medical services and it's not for profit. It's not pro- it's a nonprofit which means you're supposed to provide services to people not look at your bottom line. Very distressing news for those two communities. It's today in Ohio. Case Western Reserve University studied what happened after the legal age to buy cigarettes went from 18 to 21 in Cleveland almost 10 years ago. Lisa, this is kind of surprising and good news. What happened? Yeah, it is. It is absolutely good news. So just to set the stage, um, Cleveland raised the uh, tobacco purchasing age to 21 back in 2016. Ohio followed suit in 2019. And then later that year, the feds also imposed a 21 age for uh, buying tobacco. So the Case Western Reserve School of Medicine did a study. They looked at uh, the data of 12,600 high school students in in Cleveland and surrounding suburbs involving their use of cigarettes, cigar products, e-cigarettes, and flavored cigars. And so what they found is that from 2013 to 2019, well, actually, let me back up a little bit. From 2013 to 2015, before the age was raised, adolescent Cigarette use went up from 7.6 to 9.1%. Cigar use went from 19.8% to 21.3%. After the legislation was imposed, they found that cigarettes use by adolescents decreased from 9.1 to 4.5%. And then cigar products went down to 16.8%. So it absolutely had a direct effect on tobacco use in youth. You know what the biggest surprise to me was that the stores adhered to the law. The only way this works is if somebody goes in to buy it and they have to show proof of age and they're turned down, right? Because if they keep selling them, the the kids are still going to get them. But evidently, everybody followed the law and kids couldn't buy as much. It's really kind of a heartening result. And it, it has huge public health ramifications uh, for other cities. I mean, this is one where... If if Cleveland wasn't a leader in this, there's certainly going to be cities out there that haven't done it. They should do it. It's a public health effort. I, you know what surprised me about this is that cigar or cigar products, as they call them, were used much more by youth than cigarettes. That that was interesting to me. Well, remember though, they have the, the, the like cherry flavored, you know, mini cigars. That oh, were the very, Swisher Sweets, yeah. Yeah, they were very popular back then. I had forgotten that Cleveland had done this. You know, I'm surprised the legislature hasn't prohibited the city from limiting the age of cigarette sales because they limit everything else the city can do. But this shows when city council, the mayor, the administration make a public health initiative, it can have a big difference on people's lives. It gets back to the discussion we were having earlier this week about paying for people to travel for abortions. Uh, very interesting story. Check it out on cleveland.com. Well, actually, if I could add just a quick wrinkle to that, sure. I wonder that, you know, cigar product use was so much higher than cigarettes. A lot of people buy like Swisher Sweets, dump the tobacco and stick marijuana in there instead. So I wonder if that had anything to do with it. 
Now I wonder if marijuana has gone down too as a result. Next study for Case Western Reserve University. It's Today in Ohio. What do we know about the companies applying to get into the sports gambling business? What's it is legal in Ohio come January? Laura, they're applying, but in Cleveland, the chances they're going to get the permits are pretty slim. Yeah, good luck, Harry Buffalo. <laughs> That's one of 24 businesses that apply to the Ohio Casino Control Commission for this Type B license that allows them to build a physical casino-style sports betting operation. It's called a sports book, even though it's not a book, it's a building. Um, there's only allowed 40 in the whole state, but Cuyahoga, Franklin, and Hamilton just get five. And the rules give casinos, racinos, and sports teams preference, meaning they have the first shot at licenses. So if they want them, they get them first. In Cuyahoga, Jack Casino, Jack Thistledown, Cleveland Browns, Cleveland Cavs, and Cleveland Guardians have all applied for the same Type B licenses. That's five. And basically, those would be the five that get it. And that's what the Casino Commission basically said. Should all those be found suitable and receive a license, that would preclude any other applicants from licensure in the particular county. But Restauranteur Tony George, who had to pay a $20,000 application fee and obviously certainly knew the rules, said he expects to get a license anyway. He says he has a plan that he will not elaborate on. Does it seem counter? counterintuitive to anybody else that sports teams get precedence. Think about it. For decades, there's been a fear that if sports teams got involved in gambling, they would start throwing games, right? It's And you've seen individuals throw the games. And we've come so far now that we want the sports teams to be involved in sports gambling. I don't quite understand why they should be first in line. I would think they should be last in line. Yeah, there's going to be like a Pete Rose statue right at the sports book. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't I don't really get it other than it's a place that people gather already and it's sports. And so I'm sure there was a lot of lobbying going on when this got passed in the state. Um, the other other one that we know about is Phantom Fireworks. They want to they want a sports book in Youngstown. They do not want it at the fireworks store. So I guess that's good. But they want it in the Cavelli Center, it, which is an arena in Youngstown that seats about 6,000 people. So, I mean, I guess I haven't been to Youngstown in a very long time. But they say that this will, you know, good for downtown. And there's a lot of foot traffic there. So that could be cool. Let, let me stick with the sports team idea for a minute here. Because <laughs> don't we subsidize them enough? I mean, we yes. provide the sports teams with pretty much free places to play. They, gen they, they run their whole business on the backs of the taxpayers. Wouldn't it be a better economic development plan rather than give these very wealthy sports team owners who already get subsidized money, give it to the little guy, help develop. Or a, is a Tony new... George the little guy? Or, but <laughs> any, you know, somebody, I just, it seems like what, what is the fix in for the sports teams? Why should they get more of a public subsidy? Although I guess when sports stadium financing comes up, this will be an argument used against it. We already subsidize you by giving you millions and millions of dollars right, in sports gambling. We'll be Use able that. to see how much money they get, like what their earnings are, right? We'll know that. So yeah. you should be able to use that as as leverage. I mean, you could say the same thing about the casinos and racinos, right? I mean, they are guaranteed this money. They get all how many times do we talk about record setting months for the casinos and racinos in Ohio? And they're the only ones allowed to operate. So they've already owned that market. Why can't we give the market to somebody else? Right. 
Right. It's the rich get richer. Well, for the sports teams, be careful what you wish for, because this will be an argument used against financing the stadiums. It's today in Ohio. And actually, that is a wrap for a Wednesday, Lisa. I misspoke yesterday, but I edited it out. Thank you, Lisa. (laughs) Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back Thursday, and we'll be talking about some more news.